Hello there, and welcome to Preprints in Motion, a podcast taking a deep dive in the fast-paced world of preprints. Join us as we sit down with early career researchers, discuss their latest preprint, and find out about their journey through the muddy marshes of academia. Hit that subscribe button, leave a rating, and find us on Twitter at MotionPod. Support us by heading over to buymeacoffee.com slash preprints. But for now, let's get into the show. Today we talk with physician scientist Dr. Amy Vandiver about CRISPR, why mitochondria are the coolest organelle, and balancing being a scientist, parent, and physician. She's busy. So, to start with, I think it would be good if you could introduce yourself, tell us a little bit about where you're based, what you currently do. Yeah, so uh, my name is Amy Vandiver. Um, I'm an MD-PhD, and I'm currently just starting a position as a faculty member with the UCLA Division of Dermatology. Um, I did MD-PhD training at Johns Hopkins, where I got introduced to genomics, doing work on DNA methylation and aging. And there I was really focused on the nuclear genome. I was able to do a combined program where I did clinical training in dermatology and also had um, research support to do a funded postdoctoral period at UCLA. So during that period, I kind of shifted genomes to move into looking at the mitochondrial genome and its role in aging. Um, I'm just completing that and joining the faculty as, you know, a full clinician able to see patients on my own and beginning to start my own research group with some small uh, foundation and startup funding I'm getting uh, where I'm going to focus, um, continue to focus on the mitochondrial genome and its contribution to aging phenotypes and early oncogenesis. So you must be at a really exciting step then. It is. I've been, you know, with this MD-PhD path, I've been in training I'm 37 and, you know, I'm just, I'm just now having a job. So it's, it's very exciting to uh, move on. And it's funny, you know, in the science world, I'm sure you're very familiar. It's still very mentored. I, my um, PI calls it like squatting in a space, you know, building <laughs> my own group, but I'm looking to begin hiring my own technician and have a few foundation grants to support my own work. So it's, it's exciting to be able to start thinking about what are my own ideas and my mm. own long-term plans. So mitochondrial DNA is super interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, so I can, I, I can have a feeling of just why you probably switched to that from genomic DNA, which is boring. Yeah. Um, boring. Could, yeah. you, could you tell us a little bit about why mitochondrial DNA is so cool yeah. and what it is? Because not everyone listening might actually right. know we have mitochondrial DNA. Right. So I think most people and probably everyone listening to your podcast is really familiar with the nuclear genome. You've got these paired chromosomes. They're long linear chromosomes with telomeres at the end. And in those, you have two copies of each gene. And we've done a lot of work through the genomics revolution to really understand that genome, understand variation with it, and understand these principles of genetics where you have two copies of the gene, you know, one good, something happened, one bad, something happens, two bad, something worse happens. The mitochondrial genome just like breaks all those rules. So every cell has um, tens to hundreds of mitochondria, and then every mitochondria has many copies of its own genome. So you're talking hundreds to even thousands of genomes per cell when we think of the mitochondrial DNA. And those genomes aren't these huge, long genomes like the nucleus. They're very small. They're 16,000 base pairs, and they're arranged in a circle. So 
in some ways they're easier to study because they're smaller, but all of the methods we've developed to study the nuclear genome are really based in that like linear genome and that um, two copies per gene. They rely on that for that to understand it. So the mitochondrial genome hasn't been as well understood um, largely because it's so different. So the methods we have to study nuclear DNA haven't worked as well. We can't sequence it as easily because it is a really small percent of your overall DNA. It's less than 1% of the overall DNA per cell. And then within that, it has so much more potential for variation. So as I said, you can have like hundreds to thousands of copies of mitochondrial DNA per cell. And that DNA is really prone to damage from oxidative damage, replicative damage. So it can be accumulating structural variants, such as large deletions or duplications, and it can be accumulating point mutations, just like your nuclear DNA. And when it accumulates that damage, it can happen in just one copy of this hundreds of copies per cell. That one copy could take off so that it takes over, it could take off so it's only half of it, or it could be you know, completely erased. So instead of nuclear genetics, where I think we all you know, learned the Mendelian principles of you have homozygous wild type, heterozygous, or homozygous mutant, in mitochondrial genome, you can really have zero to 100% mutant. And it's been hard to know what that means because we don't have a lot of tools to test it and study it in vitro. But the more we're learning with the methods we do have, the more we're seeing that that whole gradient of levels of mutation can have a lot of different impacts. Um, so there's a lot of um, work with what we call cybrids, where they'll fuse mitochondrial DNA um, to different nuclear genomes. And that work is pretty, you know, it's artificial, it's immortal cells, but that's suggested that, you know, 10% of a mutant can be very different in terms of gene expression and cellular metabolism than 30% of a mutant, than 50% of a mutant, than 70% of a mutant. So this is a whole way that um, your cell can accumulate damage to shift its position, but then also potentially regulate itself, you know, by seeing which mitochondrial populations take off and which cell type. People have also seen that even like different tissues have different levels of this. We call it heteroplasmy, so the level of mutants. So there is some suggestion in development that the cell has ways to select and regulate this heteroplasmy. Why is it important that we have mitochondrial DNA? Are there specific genes on there that we don't find? Well, that we don't find in the genome. Obviously, we don't find in the genome. Yeah. What particularly important genes are on the uh, mitochondria? Yeah, that's a great question. Sorry, I sort of skipped over that. So the mitochondrial genome is um, 16,000 base pairs. Um, it encodes for 13 genes that become proteins, and those are all essential for function of the electron transport chain. So going back to you know our cell, high school cell biology, the main role we all associate with the mitochondria is to generate ATP. And a big way it does that is through both the TCA cycle, but also the electron transport chain, where electrons cycle through these series of complexes to maintain a gradient across the uh, mitochondrial inner, inner membrane. And um, we don't really know why these specific 13 genes have stayed on the mitochondrial genome and others haven't, but the mitochondrial genome encodes 13 key proteins for function of that. 
So when you're losing parts of the mitochondrial genome, like some people have seen in aging deletions encompassing, you know, up to half of the mitochondrial genome or more, you're losing the ability for that genome and then that mitochondria to make this electron transport chain and to make energy for the cell. The really interesting thing about it is not all of the proteins in the electron transport chain are encoded in the mitochondrial genome. Most of them are actually encoded in the nuclear genome. So a lot of the components of the electron transport chain are encoded in the nuclear genome and then have to be imported into the mitochondria and then interact with the proteins that were encoded in the mitochondrial genome to form a functional chain. So there's pretty interesting evidence, you know, mostly in mouse work, that we have to have this um, kind of complementarity or pairing between your nuclear DNA and your mitochondrial DNA, such that one nuclear genome might be able to tolerate a mitochondrial SNP, whereas another nuclear genome working with that mitochondrial SNP wouldn't be able to have like a good functioning ETC and might have more severe phenotypes. So it's another interesting way that like your nuclear genome could set you up to be um, more prone to sensitivity to mitochondrial DNA damage or less sensitive. Is the mitochondrial DNA regulated in the same way genomic DNA is? You mean like repair mechanisms or? Well, I'm thinking more active. Things like uh, chromatin regulation, that kind of stuff, or is that missing? So it's different. So the mitochondrial DNA is packaged around um, something called TFAM. But, and there's evidence, there's very controversial evidence regarding whether there's methylation on the mitochondrial genome or not. It's been very hard to ask well because it's hard to get pure mitochondrial DNA to study it. Um, I think the papers that have come out using nanopore to look at that specifically have suggested that it's probably a very low level. That isn't to say there aren't other marks that could have that um, regulatory role. I guess what I'm getting at is, do we see differences in cell activation states or gene or, well, disease states? Do we see that reflected in mitochondrial DNA? Um, so we haven't had the methods to study, like, epigenetic regulation at that level. So we just don't know. Um, I think there are a few papers that suggest maybe, but I think they're not fully um, understood and we haven't had the technology to believe that robustly. I think where we have more suggestion that there's regulation is in this concept of heteroplasmy, like the level of mutation in it, because different cell types um, might have more tolerance for heteroplasmy or less tolerance for heteroplasmy. There have been a few kind of modeling computational papers to come out. I think a good one came out in 2020 to suggest that the metabolic demands of that cell type could predict um, how much heteroplasmy of a specific mutation was tolerated by the cell or how actively that cell kind of got rid of the bad mtDNA. I think the theory there is that it might be unfavorable for a cell that doesn't really need great mitochondria to put in the energy to clear bad mtDNA, whereas the cells that really need good mitochondria um, will clear out the bad mtDNA. So the mitochondrial DNA accumulates more damage than genomic DNA does. Mm -hmm. Is that simply because it's in the mitochondria and it's quite a, it's not a particularly hospitable environment necessarily? Right. <laughs> There's a lot more exposure to ROS and things like that. And uh, the it's a different polymerase that doesn't have as robust repair mechanism. And is, does that level of damage differ between cell types? So things like a neutrophil, which is particularly rosy, um, <laughs> would they have more damage? 
I haven't seen in terms of specific um, like blood cell types because that would that would be a really cool study to sort out cell populations. But I I work a lot with skin, and I do know that the level of mutations we see in skin are much higher than other tissues, like that people see in blood, for example, or even in muscle, um, which has been studied as uh, like a highly highly variable in mtDNA. And I think in skin, we have the perfect RS generators through our environmental exposure as well. So it would fit with that hypothesis, but we don't know as well. Yeah, I put that to the test on the weekend when I went walking and missed a bit of my arm with sun cream. A nice little white stripe on my shoulder. Yeah. And people in skin, um, you know, this has been uh, of interest for a long time, even while we didn't have good technologies. So I think what people have been doing for a long time is looking at like specific mutations. There's one deletion event in mtDNA that is known to occur quite frequently. It's called the common deletion. And people have developed, you know, qPCR by faith assays to just say, is that one there? And in the skin field, people have been able to demonstrate that that mutation is much more frequently found in sun-damaged skin and old sun-damaged skin. And they've even done work where they'll take, um, you know, volunteers to have their very sun-protected tissue, like a buttock, exposed to UV and then shown that after the UV exposure, they'll accumulate more of these specific deletion events. So that, that data all suggests that there is a strong environmental component to the development of at least that specific mutation event. But again, we haven't had as good methods to do kind of unbiased surveying of mtDNA damage. So it's hard to say whether that would be generalizable to all deletion events or even all mutations. That is a good jumping in point as to what your preprint is all about, Mm -hmm. which is developing a new sequencing system. So could you talk a little bit about what you did? Yeah, so I I had gotten interested in mitochondrial DNA uh, back in my PhD when I'd had kind of like a, what ended up being like a spurious result in my PhD work, but it made me read all about the mitochondrial genome. And then one of my um, committee members from my PhD, uh, Dr. Winston Tim, started a lab focused on nanopore, which is a different method of sequencing. So different than the kind of standard next generation sequencing people are using with Illumina. And the nanopore sequencing, which I guess we're all becoming more and more familiar with now, allows you to do long rate sequencing. So in next generation sequencing, you take your genome, you cut it up into really small chunks, usually like 200 base pair size, and you run those on the sequencer, then you computationally realign all those chunks back into long fragments to say where they are in the genome. That works really well for the nuclear genome um, because we have a map to realign them to and because you can only have two copies of each gene so you can figure out how they fit together pretty well. That doesn't work well for the mitochondrial genome because, again, we have such a small percent of DNA, so you need a lot of representation of it. And then you have so many more copies that it is really hard to piece small chunks together and say how they would fit together on specific genomes. So we, talking with uh, Winston, Dr. Timp, when he was starting his lab and having great success using nanopore um, to do this long sequencing and get sequences of, you know, many thousand, way over the size of the mitochondrial genome, he can sequence um, in one read and put them all together. I said, oh, have we thought about sequencing mtDNA? And like, this would be a great way to start looking at the mitochondrial DNA and allow us to see how mutations co-segregate, to look at the epigenome, to look at these structural variants, which we love trouble mapping. 
and he was excited about that. And so we uh, started trying. And at first we had tried a lot of the kind of known methods to isolate mtDNA. So people will do um, gradient centrifugation to isolate mitochondria and then isolate mtDNA for that or um, digestions meant to digest all the nuclear DNA and leave the mitochondrial DNA. We were having trouble getting great enrichments. Uh, but then in parallel, uh, Dr. Tim's lab had come up with a method they were using in the nuclear genome to specifically enrich for regions of interest. That method kind of capitalizes on quirks of both the nanopore sequencing and Cas9 cleavage. So to first to step back to nanopore sequencing, what happens when you're making your nanopore sequencing library is you have your DNA, um, you don't need to cut it up or PCR amplify it or anything. You just ligate on adapters that will then attach to motor protein to pull it through the nanopore. And those adapters in the ligation will specifically ligate to free phosphorylated DNA ends. So that works great for genomic DNA. We have a lot of free phosphorylated DNA ends. But Dr. Tim's lab had previously kind of realized that, well, that offered an opportunity to manipulate. So if you control which ends are free and phosphorylated, you can control which fragments of DNA are going to be sequenced. So the protocol they developed on nuclear DNA was to dephosphorylate all of the free genomic DNA ends so that you don't have anything the adapter will ligate to, and then use then the Cas9 complexes to guide where you want to cut your DNA. Um, and when that complex cuts, it introduces a new free phosphorylated end. So then you put that into your sequencing protocol and your nanopore adapters are only going to be ligated to the sites where you put your cut with the Cas9 guide. So that allows you to cut wherever you want and kind of select what's going to be pulled through the nanopore. He'd had great success doing that with genomic DNA for like, you know, an alternative to amplicon sequencing. And we realized that that might be a good option to enrich for nanopore DNA without having to do some of these enzymatic digestions or centrifugations that, you know, end up taking a lot of your material and being um, introducing their own artifacts. So we designed a guide RNA um, at one position within this circular mitochondrial genome so that you could introduce just one cut, leaving you with a linear fragment that should be 16,500 base pairs the size of the mitochondrial DNA. Um, and we tried it and it worked really well. Actually, we got on our cell lines, got very long reads and we were able to get the majority of our reads being mitochondrial DNA. So we got rid of all that nuclear DNA we didn't want without any kind of time intensive or um, hard on the sample prep. So we were able to enrich the mitochondria and we're also able to get very long reads um, in the cell line, the majority being full length mtDNA. And that was really exciting because it allows us to get these full sequences of mitochondrial genomes and start looking at the diversity of these as I said, hundreds per cell um, to see what is actually there and how variants co-segregate with each other and what structural variants might be within it. It's, it's such a simple but clever way of doing it. It's brilliant. <laughs> now that you have it, this technology, how are you putting that to use? What are you now looking at? Yeah, so it's kind of a, it's been an interesting story in the trajectory of my training because I began working on this project when I was still at Hawkins uh, with 
when it's Tim who's you know when I want to touch my PC and he's a really methods person really interested in the genome and so it was brilliant to come up with how to do this then I came to UCLA where there's this whole community of people who are really focused on mitochondrial biology and I was able to meet two mentors here um Mike Titel and then um, my mentor for this project John Lonegat who really focus on the mitochondrial genome and they had no experience with these developing these sequencing technologies and you know john especially dr wanaget has you know built his career trying to understand how to quantify structural variants and look at variants within the mitochondrial genome so for me it was a perfect medium both worlds because i was not only able to be like okay we have this technology i know how to analyze the data and work with it and have these mentors who are so excited to like think about what to do with it and understand it um so i have been working closely with dr wanaget to especially on the structural variant calling. So once we're getting these long mitochondrial DNA reads, um, trying to use it to accurately map where deletions are occurring within the mitochondrial genome, because we know from a lot of other people's non-sequencing work that deletions in the mitochondrial genome occur frequently with aging and are a big marker of aging. So we're working very hard right now to get you know another um, story finished where we are we've developed better computational methods on a larger set of samples to map those deletions and say where they are across more of a lifespan um, of individuals. And uh, my specific interest is then in skin and what's happening when we're damaging this uh, mitochondrial genome with all the things skin is exposed to. So as I'm you know, building my own research program, I'm trying to use this new tools to look at where we see structural variants, where we see point mutations within um, environmentally exposed and then intrinsically aged skin uh, to try to identify if there are specific variants or specific markers that are going to be relevant for understanding skin aging. And then really trying to understand, A, how those fit together and if we can identify factors that predispose to it. Um, I'm interested in, you know, using the nanopore, which allows for um, post-segregation of mutants, it allows for looking at uh, base pair modifications. So I'm interested in using those tools to understand, see if we can understand um, the predisposing factors to development of the deletion mutations. And I also work um, in a cell culture-based lab where I've been um, working to develop uh, cell culture models of some of the most common variants we're seeing. Um, and it's been great to have this nanopore tool to better um, validate our cell culture models and make sure they're lining up with what we see in, v- in vivo. So you're going to keep us all looking young and beautiful then, is that, <laughs> that where it's eventually going to end up? Um, I mean, I'm, I'm interested, I actually got into dermatology because of my interest in aging biology. Um, so I'm not, I've, always, I've been less interested in the cosmetic end, but even just understanding what it means what it means for a tissue to age. You know, skin is a really interesting model of that because we have a progenitor cell population that's being asked to turn over a lot under very high stress conditions. So I think it's a really great model to understand how a lot of our renewing tissues work. And it's one that we can get samples of much more easily. I got into dermatology, honestly, because in my PhD work, I realized that it's very hard to get healthy adults to give you like a bone marrow biopsy or, you know, a muscle biopsy, but you can get skin and you can get progenitor cells from there and you can understand how they work together. I'm interested in that as intrinsic aging. And then there's also a 
you know, very in intriguing biology and skin in terms of understanding how environmental exposure and stress translates to um, development of malignancy. You know, we have many different um, cell populations that can transform and have um, really devastating cancers. So I think the other line is now that we're we've developed these tools to start better understanding the mitochondrial genome and tissue. I want to use that to understand um, how the changes we see in age and stress skin um, relate to changes we see in malignant um, skin tumors. My introduction to nanopore sequencing was a few years ago. I'm not, I'm not a geneticist. I'll get those, I'll get all the excuses in now. <laughs> but um, I, I did not see the benefit of nanopore sequencing mm -hmm. when I was introduced to it. It just went straight over my head. And this is a, I'm learning a lot. But also this is a really good way of showing why something like that is so useful. Yeah, I think the long read is, yeah, I think I think there are a few. I think Dr. Tim Slab has also done um, really amazing work. He was one of the first to use the nanopore sequencing to show that you could identify DNA methylation without having to do these enzymatic conversions. Um, and I think that is super powerful because studying base modifications and studying structural changes on the bases is always going to be so limited when we need to use these enzymatic assays like bisulfide conversion or the TET assays. But the power of the nanopore to look at that is also amazing. But I think this long read sequencing to me is the most exciting. Because I think as we show in our um, paper and as people have done a lot in the nuclear genome, the ability to be able to say, okay, we have a point mutation at one site and then thousands of base pairs away, this always is found with another point mutation. I think that's really cool in our understanding of not only the mitochondrial genome, but the nuclear genome to see how those things fit together and be able to say it without needing to rely on um, intensive computation or assumptions. How accurate is nanopore compared to more standard sequencing? It is not, you know, there is a higher error rate in terms of individual base calling. Um, but I think it's compensated by the much higher coverage we get, right? So like if we're sequencing just the mitochondrial genome, um, especially for the cell lines, we're getting very, very high presence of mtDNA enrichment and then that's full length. So you're covering each base thousands of times. So even if it's not as accurate, we're having like 10,000x coverage versus 50x coverage, it's still, um, I think, more than enough to compensate. And we... We were worried about that, and that's why we started the nanopore work with this well-established cell line, the GM cells, which have great um, NGS data from the Genome in the Bottle project. Um, and we saw just very equivalent um, NIP calling in terms of like percentage in the heteroplasmies. So I felt like pretty confident that there wasn't a huge error rate. Um, and then when we looked for kind of random errors in because I think we what we sh we looked at one of the, a blood sample and we looked at two specific SNPs that had been reported and we looked at how those co-segregate and we had some concern that like oh is our nanopore data just going to be so hard to understand for these low frequency ones you know we had 
one population of the double mutant was, you know, about 1% of the read. So we had some concern, like, could this just be nanopore So then we looked across all the muscle samples we'd done and all the cell line samples we'd done, and we never saw that level of co-segregation of mutants just occurring by chance in any other setting. So that made me feel pretty confident that even for these, like, 1% of the mitochondrial DNA errors, when we're getting enough mitochondrial reads, we can identify them. Is there a particular reason you chose muscle as a sample? So, you know, yeah, I'm a dermatologist, um, but my mentor here at UCLA, uh, John Monaghan, has really built an amazing career looking at mitochondrial DNA variation in muscle aging. And he has a great pipeline for obtaining um, clean muscle biopsies across the lifespan. So we had that tissue ready and he already had great data from other methods. Because what we did with the muscle samples was we looked at structural variation, the large deletions in the mitochondrial genome. And we already had great data from many other methods of deletion calling for those samples. So I think it was a logical choice to start with the muscle for the nanopore to see how that data would compare. Um, and it's also then a very, in terms of aging and gerontology, a very relevant tissue because we see a lot of the phenotypic decline as people age having to do with um, muscle function. Further, it's a pretty homogenous tissue. I think starting with skin, uh, the challenges of working with skin, uh, we get into all the different cell populations that are present. Where do I find out about the different bioarchive licenses? This CC, BY, CDXY nonsense is driving me nuts. Hey, that Bio have a resource for that? Ugh, that's your answer to everything. That's because they have everything you need to know about preprints. Sure, they probably have the basics, like info on the preprint servers, but what else is there? There's so much more. Looking to post a preprint, but not sure what different journal policies are? They have a collection to help you out with that. There are meetings around preprints and associated services. If you want to know how preprint adoption has changed over time, there's even a page on that. And COVID? They have a big section on preprints and the pandemic, plus some really cool infographics for communicating preprints. And university policies? Surely they don't have that. They collect uni policies where possible. Okay, okay, they do sound pretty impressive, but is it not a bit of an echo chamber? It can be, but ASAP Bio also engage with people who don't love preprints and have concerns. So we had an excellent discussion on this very topic a couple of months ago. Ugh, is there anything ASAP Bio don't do? Honestly, no, they're so nice over there. They were so quick to jump in and support this show. It's your one-stop shop for info on preprints and open science initiatives. So head over to asapbio.org to learn more and subscribe to their newsletter for the latest in preprint news. If you want a deeper dive into the world of preprints, then look out for the next recruitment of ASAP Bio Fellows. So questions we ask everyone who comes on, uh, whose decision was it to preprint and why did you decide to preprint the work? We have to ask this based on the fact that it's in our name. So Winston Timp, um, always, who's, you know, my co-corresponding author for this work and one of my um, greatest mentors always preprints his work. Um, I think he, since he started, he's very active on science Twitter and you know, communicating in that way. So that was his decision. This was my first experience pre-printing um, because with the MD-PhD passing, I finished my PhD in 2015. So I had this lag where I completed med school and my residency of science and the publishing methods advanced a lot in that time. Um, but I was glad to pre-print because it was nice to say, okay, who knows how long our review process will take and 
least we'll have this up and ha start getting feedback, start seeing what other people think of the work and, you know, get it out there. And you have had some feedback from Prelights, which is one of the other things that I sometimes do. Uh, how was that? As the person who sometimes writes those, it's always nice when we get a bit of author feedback and we kind of chat and it's it kind of naturally led into this, actually. How did you find that process on the other side? Yeah, that was it was pretty exciting. You know, I think in science, you probably know, you get so focused on what you're doing and you get so excited about these little things and then you put it out there and it's kind of, who knows if anyone will read it, <laughs> especially with the preprint, you know, it's, you're just putting something out there and it's hard to know if anyone else will care. Hmm. So I think when we were contacted by Prelates, it was exciting for me, especially to see like, oh, that they're interested in our work, that they read our work, that they thought about it deeply. And I thought he did a really great job of kind of, I felt like he summarized better than I'd been able to articulate in my own head, like why this matters and um, the broad implications. So then it was it was also exciting to um, look up the author of the prelates and see, oh, he has some sort of similar research interests to us. So perhaps we can work together in the future. So yeah, that was, it was, a, it was an exciting process. I've got a collaborator of writing prelates actually. So yeah, I wrote one a while ago and then we ended up, me and the first author in the paper ended up collaborating together on two papers now. So they are they are good. Look at that, bringing people together. Yeah, I think, I mean, it's always nice to know someone else has, like, you know, thought about your work. I'm just happy when people read it. So you met, you've told me about this process of doing a, a PhD and an MD. How is that process? Because that sounds like I mean, American PhDs sound awful just anyway because you're there for so long. But that must be quite a stressful thing to do, especially spending that amount of time being educated. Yeah, it's definitely it's definitely a specific type of person who <laughs> should and you know does do. I was in training for or, or in school, even you know my pre-doctoral training for a very long time. I did. So I don't know how it's done in the UK, actually. In the US, we do two years of med school, then we complete a PhD, which has a variable length, but is usually a bit longer than the UK. And for me, it was five years, so it was even longer than I think some MD PhDs. And then we do the last two years of medical school, and then we do our residence, our internship and our residency training. And I think for a lot of people who are in the physician scientist path, it's very easy to drop off in that internship and residency period because you've gotten older and you're just you're out of touch with science and the going back and forth is hard. I was lucky to match into my residency program at UCLA, which is this combined postdoctoral and clinical training. So I was able to get looped back into science earlier and have a lot of support at UCLA to do that. So I think that for me has been really essential. But even there, it's, it's a long, long road. <laughs> um, so it is, it is draining. Had you always wanted to do that? Because, I mean, your fun fact was you wanted to be a costume designer, so you hadn't always wanted to do that. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, when you made your mind, it was always MDPC, or did you ever no. sort of split up and just one or the other? So I actually, um, yeah, I, I'm very late to the game. As I... It was like through high, early high school, I think I was very set on this thing of wanting to be, I wanted to be like a costume designer for movies. And then I also thought I might want to be a rabbi. So I don't know how I ever thought those would fit together. <laughs> but then in college, I 
went to college, I think the design, the costume designer, I really liked patterns and kind of the math and like engineering aspect of it. So I went to college thinking I would want to do science or engineering or pre-med. So I started taking the, like that early coursework and I just, I loved molecular biology. You know, it, it sounds cliche, but I took my molecular biology coursework and I learned about the kind of experimental design. And I remember learning, uh, I went to Princeton and Shirley Talman lectured us about developmental biology and how Eric Rochelle had designed his fly screens. And I thought it just was so cool. I thought this is what I want to, I want to, you know, work in a science lab, but I wasn't sure that I would really fit in in the like pure science world. And I think as a, you know, woman, there's a lot of feedback that it's better to do medical school and which is more secure. And, you know, you don't want to be in the publisher parish rat race. So I um, ended up applying just to normal med school. Um, and I entered Hopkins as a MD student, not in the MD. But the summer after my first year of medical school, I started where I was working on a research project again, I started working on aging research and DNA methylation. And it was just clear to me that I really wanted to have a career doing experimental research and doing, you know, like real science research. And I felt like if, and at that time it felt like, well, I'm young. If I really want to do this and I want to do it well, I should do all the training I can to do it well. So I applied, um, internally to the Hopkins MD-PhD program. I was able to get a spot to start the MD-PhD program internally. So it was kind of a last minute decision in med school to do. But I think since I have done that, there's never been a time where I thought, oh, I don't want to do this anymore. I think I I felt like I really do enjoy the balance. I've talked a lot about how hard it is to do both and how long it is, but I think it is, there's, it's like such a unique position to be in, to be able to be seeing patients and, you know, treating patients with these things that are coming out of our labs and then also be part of the world of science where we're developing these methods and learning and identifying these tools that are then going to go back to our patients. So I think it's it's a really, you know, it's not for everyone, but it is a really unique and like privileged position to be in, to be able to do both. How do you find that balance between clinical work and lab-based work and being a mother work actually, because you have a child. So that's a lot of that's two there were even more things to juggle that's a lot going on in life I struggle and I've got nothing going on in life (laughs) it is a lot going on you know I think I can't answer that too well because I've just been I'm I'm not sure how it'll I think at every stage you just do it you just do what you're doing and you do your best yeah I think I've heard different women say in different ways but I think uh, Carol Grider at Hopkins said something to one of us like there's no such thing as like work-life balance it's just like you choose to do things you care about and you try to do them all and try your best at everything you know it's not like a seesaw where you're constantly at equilibrium Um, but I think just trying my best and trying to only do things that feel like they're worth it and feel like I want to do them and then if you're doing something you want to do you do your best at it and you work your hardest I'm really lucky to have um, a partner my husband who does probably more than me in terms of the um, child care you know like helps 
a ton during my clinical training. My husband is also an MD PhD. So, you know, we're just, we're, we understand and be through it. And we have a huge amount of family support here in Los Angeles to, you know, make sure our kids are getting cared for while we also do all the work we can. And I think balancing clinic and research is challenging. I think dermatology is a nice field for that because our clinic hours can be somewhat standardized. You know, I think the inpatient services are a little harder because you're either fully inpatient, that's a full-time that week where you're off with derm that we tend to do two clinics a week and then have the rest of your time for research. So it's a little easier to structure. Um, But again, I think you just do your best and um, I'm very into my to-do lists and (laughs) I wish I, I wish there was some magic sauce. (laughs) I think just doing your best and trying very hard to make sure you're being kind to ourselves and not, not getting burned out. That would annoyingly be a really good place to end. But I've, there's one question. I just serendipitously that you've you've had a, an MD PhD path and you're at the point where you're about to start your own thing, because there was a question asked on Twitter this week, and you would be a good person to ask. It's all about you. So, well, people in your position. Um, somebody on Twitter asked about how they're they're currently mentoring a lot of people and they're getting they're getting a feeling that clinical scientists get more when they start a lab so they get more respect they get more lab space they get more startup funds all that kind of stuff and now I can only comment on that from seeing other clinical PhD students that's my limited experience with it I mean how do you feel that do you think that's way off the mark or do you think there's something in that I don't think that's as much the experience I've seen I think I think it's maybe easier because you have the MD right so like you know, for me to be hired for a job, I was being hired for both a clinical job and a research job, right? So part of me is I'm paying part of my salary through seeing patients too, which is easier to guarantee, right, than funding. But I think the startup, at least in my experience, talking to other physician scientists tends to be lower because you're, you know, you're being hired primarily as a clinician, then you're buying your research time versus like you're being hired to be a researcher. You know, but I, yeah, I think my experience is that it is the opposite. So I don't know if it's a difference in like UK or the US. Or... Oh, it sounds a little bit like being hired as a lecturer because right. then you are, right. if you do research, you are buying time out of lecturing. I think I'm I'm lucky to be at UCLA where there's kind of a, the, we, the program I was in for my residency is um, for people like me, for MD, PhDs and where we have projected time in our fellowship to build our career. So I think it's nice to have that kind of support and that track. But I have, and so that, that I feel like made my hiring and negotiation process a little easier because there are people who've come before it, not not just in Durham, but in the other specialties in medicine to kind of talk to. But I, I have friends from my PhD years, a lot of my MD PhD friends who are trying to navigate this in many different settings. And I think it's so hard because there's, there's always a need for clinical work, you know, like a they always need someone to be seeing patients and staffing patients and taking calls. So you have to justify not being that person. You have to make sure you're valuable enough as a researcher to justify that. So I don't know. Like we start with very, very exciting place to be. And hopefully it sounds <laughs> yeah, like we'll you're going to do great. Yeah, I am. And I'm looking for technicians. So if anyone 
in Los Angeles's listing, please contact me if you want to work on the mitochondrial genome. We need to get somebody hired through the show. We've not done that yet. That would be cool. <laughs> I hadn't thought about doing this as a way to recruit that. But yeah, if anyone is listening in Los Angeles and wants to be a research technician, contact me. And that's the show, folks. If you enjoyed listening, then hit that subscribe button to get the latest updates straight to wherever it is you're listening. Don't forget to rate us on Spotify or Apple and follow us on Twitter at MotionPod. You can find links to things we've just discussed on our website, preprintsinmotion.com. If you'd like to tell us what you think, then send an email, shout at us on Twitter, or shout at us if you see us walking down the street. This has been a JMJ production, generously supported by our friends at ASAP Bio. Until next time, have a good week.